Hello and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of October 14th. I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss the drivers behind a recent narrowing in credit spreads and whether or not it can continue in the weeks ahead. Finally, towards the end, we update some themes from the derivatives market ahead of the Big Bang crossover at swap clearinghouses. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Well, Dan, it's been two weeks since our last podcast, and I think that one word can pretty easily sum up the last two weeks as a whole, and that word is stimulus. Yeah, it's really been all about the prospect of fiscal stimulus over the past few weeks. And despite headlines that have been pretty mixed, even on a day-to-day basis, we've seen a pretty significant outperformance in credit spreads. We touched as high as 140 basis points in the Bloomberg Barclays Index in the last week of September, and we've narrowed 14 basis points since then. So a pretty constructive environment for credit spreads. We're now just a couple basis points off of these post-pandemic tights in the investment grade index. Yeah, and I think you point out the interesting dichotomy there, which is that it's just been this push and pull with stimulus for really two weeks now. It seems like every day we come in and if there's going to be stimulus today, equities are higher. And if stimulus is looking less likely today, equities are lower. But despite this sort of tug of war, there's been consistent narrowing pressure on credit spreads. And I think that the important driver there actually isn't stimulus at all. To me, it's more likely pricing in a lower likelihood of uncertainty following the presidential election as as the lead that Vice President Biden supposedly had heading into the debates has not only been maintained, but has seemingly grown since then. You can't find a poll that indicates that it's even going to be a close race at this point. So if it does turn out that Biden overwhelmingly wins the election and we don't have to go through this whole legal process of mail-in votes and absentee ballots and recounts and everything – Even a Biden win, which is typically historically viewed as less constructive for financial markets, given Democratic policies on taxation and regulation, a clear outcome is more important at this point than a Trump victory. And I think that's what we've been seeing providing the boost to risk assets. And actually, the stimulus tug of war has not really had much impact. Yeah, Dan, I agree. And this underweight position that we had previously held for a lot of August was predicated mainly on the expectation that there would be a considerable degree of uncertainty that followed the presidential election. It does seem like with Biden's now double-digit lead in the polls or near-double-digit lead, we are probably going to see a clear outcome. And even if that is Vice President Biden, like you said, I think that's going to be more well-received by markets than uncertainty. We've written and talked about this at length in in recent episodes and weeklies, but I think it's a really important point, and it's driven a lot of this risk-on move. 
Yeah, Dan, you mentioned the change in view that we've had. We've moved away from the credit underwrite. I mean, it's sort of splitting hairs. I think from a high-level perspective, not that much has actually ended up changing. We've just made a more explicit move towards any incremental spread widening that does come in the next couple of weeks has to be viewed as a buying opportunity. We were on record numerous times talking about how we expect credit spreads to reach historical lows in the current credit cycle, potentially as early as 2021, dependent upon the, the timeline of vaccines. But in any event, next year being a lower volatility, low spread environment that you want to be overweight credit going into as we look ahead to this yield grab type of environment. So so really just this more explicit stance on that any spread widening needs to be viewed as a buying opportunity. But that said, given how far spreads have come and that we're just we're actually less than two basis points off the post-pandemic lows at this point, it would not be surprising at all to see credit spreads widen a little bit in the weeks ahead. We talked about how the action in the past couple of weeks has primarily been due to the election, most likely. So that leaves stimulus as potentially a weight on credit spreads going forward since it's looking less and less likely that we're going to actually get fiscal stimulus throughout all the posturing and all the headlines that are both supportive or not supportive. It's just time's really running out. And we have headlines this morning from Treasury Secretary Mnuchin saying that it will be difficult to get stimulus before the election. And certainly we're getting wary of trying to guess on stimulus whether we're going to get it or not, but it just really seems like it, it's going to be more difficult. Yeah, Dan, I agree with that. And I think you hit on the most important point is that we're simply running out of time with respect to stimulus. There's less than three weeks left before the election. And every day that we have these mixed headlines where we go back and forth with respect to how likely stimulus is to come, simply becomes less likely that we're going to get it before the election. And then there's other risks on the horizon, of course. We haven't even talked about the virus yet. And given the current level of spreads, it certainly seems reasonable to me that spreads are going to come under a little bit of pressure here. Yeah, and if you really think about it, if the market has to price out stimulus ahead of the presidential election, it also might have to price out stimulus between now and January or February because the market can't rely on President Trump to deliver stimulus during a lame duck session. We're not going to go very deep into the analysis there. It's just it's back and forth every day. And who knows how this president is going to act if he ultimately loses the election. My guess would be he'd be primarily focused upon trying to prove that he didn't lose. But in any event, the market can't rely on stimulus until Biden actually takes office, which isn't until mid to late January. Then with fiscal benefits potentially not actually flowing until as late as early February. So there is a real risk here that stimulus could be months away. And in that case, we could be looking at the employment numbers moving the wrong direction again. Some of the obvious things, the virus, the fact that it's getting cold outside so the virus should spread. Some businesses that have been doing business in non-traditional ways, think outdoor dining here, that will become impossible in the next couple of weeks. And we could have a renewed hit to earnings streams, particularly for small businesses. And when you look at the bankruptcy data, it's small businesses where bankruptcy continues to be elevated. For example, if you look at defaults by large companies, they've really fallen significantly since the, the height of the pandemic and in September hit lows not seen since March in terms of large company defaults that are benefiting significantly from central bank liquidity. But if we look at small businesses, after a bit of a downturn in August, September once again returned to the heights of July, June, May, April. In line with those months where small businesses are continuing to file bankruptcy at a heavy rate. So the small business sector is struggling, and we know that small businesses employ 50% of Americans. So without more fiscal stimulus before the election, I think we could see credit spreads back up. That view hasn't changed. Just making sure to view that as, an, as a buying opportunity is really the key takeaway from our view at this point. And when we implement that view, Dan, 
Is there any pockets of value that seem to stand out to you? Yeah, we've seen a fair amount of spread compression over the past few weeks. And I think up in credit trades make a lot of sense right now, just given the valuations of different credit products. Moving up the credit spectrum, maybe from triple Bs to single A's or single A's to double A's or even into agencies and SSAs, I think would be wise given the headwinds that we're expecting in the near term. But ultimately, I wouldn't recommend underweight positions at this point, I think given just the longer term view that you discussed. Yeah, Dan, you allude to the return standpoint of the risk-return proposition in favoring up-in-credit trades, and I'm with you. From a return standpoint, if we look at spread relationships across the credit spectrum, whether moving from SSA agencies out to AA's or from AA's to BBBs, what have you, spread relationships have compressed to the bottom end of multi-year trading ranges. We're not at the bottom, but they're not far off the bottom. And if we view it as difficult for credit spreads to make new lows in the weeks ahead, just given all the uncertainty out there, we actually see a similar degree of potential spread compression among the different asset classes. Like, for example, just going back to the SSA agency example, three to five-year SSAs are, what, two to three basis points on G spread off of the post-March lows. That's the same potential spread narrowing we're looking at in AA corporates. So unless you think spreads are going to make new lows in the next couple of weeks, alongside the virus election and everything that's going on, there doesn't seem to be much more spread narrowing potential for products further out the credit curve. But then when you turn to the risk standpoint, none of this is our base case, but there is still a risk, however small, that the virus spread becomes significantly worse in the winter and could incite new economic shutdowns. There is a risk that the vaccine timelines get pushed back. We've seen a couple pauses in vaccine trials at this point, nothing to be too concerned about now. But if if we start to see that there are some more severe reactions or for whatever reason, even just manufacturing and distribution, it looks like the vaccine won't be available until after the market is currently assuming there is potential for some significant underperformance in some of these higher beta credit spread products at this point. It doesn't really seem to me that the return part of the risk return proposition is there. So I'm with you on the up in credit trades for the time being, and then looking to move out the credit spectrum in the next few weeks if we get some of that widening that we're looking for. And then a bit more idiosyncratic idea to target while building credit overweights ahead of 2021 that could potentially benefit from the election of, of Vice President Biden would be to look at securities with higher ESG credentials or green bonds just given a potential shift in attitudes from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. Yeah, Dan, so most investors in the ESG space are probably well aware that the U.S. has really lagged other parts of the world, namely Europe, in the green bond market. And a lot of this has to do with the President Trump administration, certainly not all of it, but there has been a more relaxed attitude towards environmentally conscious activities under the Trump administration. There's a lot of reasons to think that that could change under a Biden presidency, and that would likely bring profitability to the green bond market. Yeah, I think you're putting it kindly to say that it's been more of a relaxed attitude. You could even say it's been actively hostile towards ESG. We had President Trump withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accord. Biden has already indicated a desire to put the U.S. back into the Paris Climate Accord. Obviously, Biden's proposed infrastructure program includes a large green component to it, and it's not out of the realm of possibility to think that that infrastructure program could end up being partially funded with green bonds. I mean, we know that U.S. regulators and the Treasury Department has monitored green bonds, never really considering issuing them to this point, but it's certainly something they've been monitoring. We've seen sovereign green insurance from many countries in Europe, most recently from Germany that began their green bond program in September, 
And with the more explicit shift back to ESG in the U.S., we could see green bond start to outperform. We do an annual study on the presence of a quote-unquote greenium, which is tighter spreads for green bonds. And in the U.S., it doesn't exist, but each year we've done it, there's been growing evidence of it around the world. And this year marked the first time that in the euro market, we had more than 50% of the securities in our study have reliable evidence of a greenium. So this is a shift in financial markets that everyone's well aware of. It's been moving rapidly these past few years. And if the U.S. changes their stance, I think that would sort of add fuel to the fire with this shift towards greenifying or you know higher emphasis on ESG. And adding those securities now could result in some outperformance of a couple basis points here and there. Sure, only a couple basis points, but a couple basis points is going to be extremely valuable in, in the years to come where we have the expectation for extremely low volatility and extremely low spreads. And Dan, at that point, now I would like to transition the conversation to follow up on a few things we talked about a couple of weeks ago in the derivative space. Specifically, there's been a few headlines regarding the transition from Sulphur to LIBOR in the past couple of weeks. We have the Big Bang coming up on Friday and Monday at the clearinghouses. In just this week, we had an announcement from ISDA. Isn't that right? Yeah. So ISDA published their protocols this week and announced that they would become effective towards the end of January 2021. So while this isn't necessarily a surprising announcement, we've known this was coming, it's just more and more impetus to believe that the pieces are in place for LIBOR to be discontinued as early as the end of 2021. Now, we spent a lot of time expecting for that deadline to be extended. It seems like regulators are very adamant that that deadline is still in place and could potentially happen. In fact, the FCA announced in the summer that the discontinuation of LIBOR could be announced as early as the end of this year. Now, LIBOR would still be published through the end of 2021, but such a pre-cessation announcement by the FCA would cause the credit spread adjustments to become fixed as of the end of this year. So that is a real risk that has become more possible by the publication of these ISDA protocols, right, Dan? Yeah, I mean, the discussion of whether or not LIBOR actually goes away at the end of 2021, I think that's a different discussion. There's a lot more going on there, particularly with the contracts that aren't able to be fixed and uh, these these legacy contracts that are going to become fixed rate securities or God knows what else. You know, we're not seeing a lot of traction on legislation in New York that would fix those contracts. FFCB is coming out with initiative just this week to try and exchange some of those insufficient fallback floaters for securities that have enhanced fallbacks. We'll see how that goes. But like I said, I think that's just a different conversation. More germane to this conversation is the fact that FCA could make a pre-cessation trigger announcement by the end of this year. Everything coming from the regulators seems to indicate that they're planning to do so. And if they do, that's going to freeze the credit spread adjustment under ISDA's fallback protocol. And the market's still underpricing those fallbacks. We talked in our last podcast about how swap spreads finally broke out of their three-month-long range recently. Well, they broke out of them by a basis point or two to the upside before moving right back into the range. And now, again, we're seeing them starting to drift higher. And I think the driver there is simply the fallbacks and that the market is starting to take the possibility of a pre-cessation trigger by the end of 2020 more seriously. And if that's the case, it seems to me that LIBOR bases need to widen and we should see swap spreads widen too. The question is by how much? Yeah, Dan. So to answer that question, I think first we need to look at where the fallback adjustment spread would be depending on when LIBOR cessation occurs. So as of today, the three-month credit spread adjustment, if LIBOR were to be discontinued, would set at 26.2 basis points. 
Now, if this were to be announced at the end of the fourth quarter of this year, it would likely still be around there, 26.2 basis points. If this happened further into the future at the end of 2021, that credit spread adjustment would fall to about 23.6 basis points, we estimate. And that's because this rolling five-year median window would omit the 2016 period of money market reform where LIBOR set about 40 to 45 basis points above OIS. But if the announcement from the FCA came at the end of this year and the fallback adjustment spread was 26 basis points for the three-month tenor, we estimate that two-year swap spreads would settle around 18 basis points, and five-year swap spreads would be just around 14 or 15 basis points. So a pretty significant widening would be possible if we got this pre-cessation announcement from the FCA this year. And I think this widening is not limited just to swap spreads, but most LIBOR derivative products seem to be underpricing the potential for LIBOR to be discontinued relatively soon. All right, well, thanks, Dan. Before we go, I just want to take a couple minutes to update some of the trends we talked about a few weeks ago when we were talking about the Big Bang transition from Fed funds to silver discounting at the swap clearinghouses. If that's not a subject of interest to you, you can uh, disconnect here. But we've seen some really interesting price action in some of the long-end bases ahead of the Big Bang. And specifically last time we talked about monitoring the silver Fed funds basis in the long end to try to get an idea for how big clearinghouse auctions found in the Big Bang would be, which would then ultimately give us a clue for how big a boost to derivatives futures trading might come in the wake of the Big Bang. And specifically, we've been looking at the CME auction, which had an October 2nd deadline for whether or not end clients wanted to participate in the auction. And what's very interesting is we saw a significant increase in the 30-year SOFR Fed funds basis going into that October 2nd deadline. And then on that day, SOFR Fed funds turned much lower and dropped significantly in the weeks following October 2nd. I think that's an extremely important theme when we talk about the drivers behind it. Now, without getting into too much detail on the Big Bang, there were certain accounts that it was thought would be more likely would be unable to handle compensatory swaps, and those were specifically real money accounts at the long end. And there was concern that we'd have large one-way demand at the auction that could lead to a significant change in the basis if we had one type of account going significantly in one direction or the other. Anecdotally, I think in our conversation with clients, the, the main goal so far during the SOFR LIBOR transition has been to reduce uncertainty. And certainly one way to do that is to reduce any exposure heading into the Big Bang. Even as an example, think of what happens with the compensatory swaps. At first blush, you think, well, there's really not much uncertainty regarding the compensatory auction. If you can't handle or for whatever reason don't want the compensatory swap, you just enter it into the auction. And that's that, except that's not really true. There is a possibility that the auction fails if cost exceeds a certain threshold, and then you get booked with your compensatory swap whether or not you wanted it. That doesn't strike me as overly certain. So the only way to deal with the Big Bang with certainty is to restrike your portfolio ahead of the Big Bang and then not have to worry about the compensatory auction at all. And that would have the same impact on the basis that the auction was expected to have. We'd have a widening SOFR Fed funds basis, and that's exactly what we saw up until the October 2nd deadline, which at that point, either you've restructured your portfolio or you're going to take or not take the compensatory swap. You've decided what you're going to do, basically. And at that point, we immediately see the SOFR Fed funds basis turn lower once again, which implies to me a couple of things. First of all, it implies that there was a lot of demand for real money accounts to restrike the portfolio ahead of October 2nd 
which then means that the auction sizes will be smaller than they otherwise would be. So we should see, you know, continuing downward pressure on so for Fed funds basis, upward pressure on Fed funds LIBOR basis mechanically, given that so for LIBOR is sort of pinned to the fallback expectations, loosely at least. So we should see that continue. And then it also implies that the potential for increased trading following the Big Bang isn't as much as it otherwise would have been since these auctions were supposed to generate, you know, exposure for dealers that they had to find end clients to take the other side of, just increased trading in a few different dimensions. And, and, and trading will increase, that's for sure. But it won't increase by as much if you had guys restrike their portfolio ahead of time, and then that's sort of it. And then that has ramifications for term sulfur, which relies upon derivative volumes in sulfur. We don't know what a number there is yet. We've written about it. If anyone's interested, please reach out to us. But we don't know a number. And the end of 2021 is right around the corner, and LIBOR is theoretically going to go away. And the development of a term SOFR is viewed as a key step towards that. Well, for that term SOFR, we need to have higher derivative volumes. And, and the Big Bang is looked at one of the main ways that's going to happen. That may not end up being the case. So we'll certainly talk more about it in the weeks ahead in these podcast episodes to see what the actual follow through looks like. But sitting where we are right now, it doesn't seem like the Big Bang is going to end up being as big a bang as perhaps some people hoped for. Dan, anything else to mention before we go? I think we've covered it. Thank you for listening to Macro Horizons. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. 
BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.